Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas. Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Pamela Fuentes, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Judith Lipton about her new book, Strength Through Peace, How the Militarization Led to Peace and Happiness in Costa Rica, and What the Rest of the World Can Learn from a Tiny Tropical Nation, book recently, recently published by Oxford University Press, and uh, this is a book she wrote in collaboration with David P. Barish. Judith, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pamela. I'm very happy to be here. Very excited to be here. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a, li- a, a little bit about yourself. I am 67 years old. I am. Um, I have lots of roles that I play. I'm the mother of three children, and... Two of them have children, so I'm grandmother of four children. I say that first. Um, and that's important in Latin America. That would be one of the major things, I think, when we're going to know. Um, I'm a psychiatrist by training, which means that I'm a medical doctor, and my specialty was psychopharmacology, which means um, drugs and the mind. Um, I, I fancied myself as being a little bit like Julia Childs in French cooking. I was really good and earned my living as a uh, cook for people with severe psychiatric disorders who needed treatment. And, um, I practiced from 1979 to 2009 when I closed my practice in order to go and live in Costa Rica. Um, so since 2009, I've been working as an author, not as a practicing psychiatrist. Um, I've never taken a course in psychology. Um, people get confused about psychiatry and psychology, and um, I'm married to David Barish, David is a zoologist. David has also never taken a course in psychology, even though he's emeritus professor of psychology at the University of Washington. Um, so we are together evolutionary biologists. That's most of our work has been about evolution based on natural selection. We also are diehard, very committed uh, peace activists with working to prevent nuclear war against war uh, almost full time since 1979. So um, David has written 40 books altogether. I've had the privilege of co-authoring eight or nine of those. The Costa Rica book that just came out is the first one I've been first author on. So I'm very excited about that. Um, but we speak of ourselves as co-shareholders in our fitness because of being grandparents and co-shareholders of our, our uh, academic, you know, gifts to the world because we've collaborated so well. So, and as, sorry, as part of this collaboration, why did you and David decide to write Strength Through Peace? How did you both come with the idea of exploring peace, happiness, and demilitarization with the background you, you have? How all of that came into play? Um, the night that Obama was elected in 2008, we left early that morning to go to Puebla, Mexico, to go to kind of a we were speakers at a TED conference in Mexico, and with the money that they paid us, we took a vacation to Costa Rica, and we specifically went to a 
horse farm. And I'm, I, I love animals. I love all animals, but especially dogs, cats, and horses. So we went to a horse farm, and I felt completely in love. I felt like I'd come home because we were living in a small cottage with monkeys in the trees and parrots in the trees, horses everywhere. And one can ride a horse from where you're staying to a local restaurant, ride a horse to a tree, go for a swim, have lunch in a Michelada, ride home. It was perfect. And I I just fell arse over tea kettle and loved it in Costa Rica and decided to go back for a longer visit. So in the fall of 2009, I went for six months, and then we bought a house there. And what happened was that in um, 2011, Nicholas Kristof wrote an article about Costa Rica describing Costa Rica as the happiest nation in the world. And because we were so happy there, Christoph was so happy there, we thought, okay, why not write a book about it? It just seems that's how we work together. We, we, we just decided to write a book. Um, and so we began to explore the happiness topic of, was Costa Rica really the happiest country in the world? What, what is happiness? What did that mean? Um, it turned out to be a dead end. It turned out that the literature, science behind claiming the Costa Rica was the happiest nation in the world, didn't hold up. Um, that claim was based on um, the Gallup Corporation making a thousand phone calls in Costa Rica, but also one thousand calls in China, one thousand calls in India, one thousand calls in Malta. 1,000 calls in Liechtenstein. Um, and somehow it didn't seem right to me scientifically that 1,000 calls in Costa Rica would be equivalent to 1,000 calls in India. It, 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 I, I couldn't see how that was. Also, the questions that they asked were things like, um, would you like to have another day just like yesterday? And that's an interesting question, but hardly substantive. Um, they also use something called a cantrell ladder, which is on a scale of 0 to 10, um, where 10 is the happiest possible way to be, and 0 is the most sad possible way to be. Where are you? Um, and they asked that. Um, but there was no... Um, that. That kind of question at the basis of happiness psychology. It turned out that um, no other serious organizations use those questions to evaluate the well-being of their citizens. For example, Costa Rica um, does not ask that question in its annual State of the Union assessment. In fact, they don't act ask a single question about subjective well-being. So we worked and worked and worked for two years. And then finally, we wrote to our editor at Oxford and said, we can't do this. not going to work. The happiness literature is too scattered. We can't live with it. The only thing we know for sure about Costa Rica is that they abolished the military in 1948. They have not had an army since 1948. Um, they haven't had a war. They've had two wars in 400 years, and that's all. There's a total of 4,000 casualties. And, you know, um, Costa Rica's not in an especially peaceful neighborhood. But the health, well-being, and tranquility in Costa Rica is an outlier compared, say, to its neighbor Nicaragua or other countries in Latin America. So we decided to simply look at how demilitarization happened, what the process was, and what the implications were for the rest of the world. And our editor said that would be okay, and the book got rewritten. 
Yeah, and, and you explain all, all of those elements uh, through every of the chapters. So if it's okay with you, let's start with some of the ideas that actually um, are useful for our audience in order to have a context. For instance, when starting the book, uh, opening the first chapter, uh, the reader finds two important ideas uh, that, that I would like you to explain more in depth. The first one is happiness that you already mentioned. And in fact, the book opening lines uh, are an observation of happiness you took from Ana Karenina. Yes. And the other one is the idea that Costa Rica experiences a paradox. Could you please, mm -hmm. please explain to the audience the particular paradox of this country and how it is related to happiness? Um, happiness has been defined or by philosophers even way before Aristotle, where way um, in, in India, you know, around the time of the Buddha and Ashoka, people have tried to define what makes a good life or a happy life. Um, there's no general agreement. Um, and also part of the problem is there's no agreement on whether happiness is a transient thing, like the smile on your face, when I answer a good question or um, smile on my face when I see my dog, or whether happiness is the sum of living a good life. Aristotle felt that happiness had to be added up and that you really couldn't be considered happy until you were dead and that the sum of your good deeds would result in your overall happiness. That's a kind of an extreme point of view. Um, um, it's a, it's a very elusive concept. We all can know happiness when we feel it, but how do we sum it up or say it? Um, there is a good reference called the World Institute of Happiness that listeners could log on to or reference quite a bit in the book. It lists all of the studies of happiness, and happiness is also called subjective well-being or SWB, where you can look at the tests for happiness of assessments in history. So as a psychiatrist, I was never trained by happiness at all. Um, psychiatrists live in the world of misery. So I know all sorts of questions about how to evaluate misery. Um, I quantify dyslamia, depression, all sorts of things. But happiness has not been a subject, a psychiatric subject. Um, so, in our book, the quote from Anna Karenina was, uh, all happy families are alike, all unhappy families are different. Um, it's called the Anna Karenina principle. And we, we explored that a lot because if you look at in the Wikipedia, and you go look at the happiest countries, you'll see a list based on the various scales. Um, the happiest countries are not all alike. And what's weird about Costa Rica, very unusual, is that Costa Rica punches above, above its weight, as it were, in terms of happiness, health, and subjective well-being. Costa Rica is a middle-income country. I think it's like 54th in terms of their gross national product. Not a rich country. It's in a bad neighborhood. It's, it's, um, it's got a lot of problems. All you have to do is try driving from San Jose to the ocean and you'll see the problems. Um, but despite all those problems, Costa Rica was beating out places like Norway and Sweden and Canada in terms of gross national happiness, which was a phrase that was coined by the king of Bhutan when he was 22, even though other countries have tried to take that up or not take that up. The anomaly, the paradox, is that Costa Rica is a small country about the size of West Virginia with a middle income base, it doesn't have a lot of industry, it does, it's not thriving in a big kind of economic way, and yet 
overall, by every measurement you can look at, health, maternal effect, pregnancy, longevity, Costa Rica is up with Scandinavian countries, Canada, way above the United States in terms of doing well. And so that's what we were looking at the book. How come Costa Rica is doing so well when the neighbors in Latin America are not doing so well? And in fact, we took a, a map of the world and we drew a line with two magic markers and we looked at countries exactly at the same um, uh, latitude of Costa Rica. You get Yemen. You get places in Vietnam. It, 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 Costa Rica is completely out of place if you just look at the geography of Costa Rica. So that's why we decided that what what, what makes Costa Rica different? That it, I really like how all of the chapters uh, communicate to each other. And in the chapter War and Human Nature, you raised interesting questions about the meanings and consequences of militarization and demilitarization, not only for Costa Rica, but also for the rest of the world. Right. And uh, there is a particular uh, argument that caught my attention. What are the implications of a decision like this, demilitarization, in a world that widely accepts the idea that war is part of human nature? That's a wonderful question. Um, Kenneth Boulding, who is a peace researcher, coined something called Boulding's First Law, which is that anything that exists is possible. Um, that's really important. The fact that Costa Rica exists as a non-killing society with no army, and they also have laws against hunting, they also do not permit, for example, killing somebody who invades your house. Um, the bullfights in Costa Rica, they don't kill the bulls. They don't even come close to killing the bulls. Um, Costa Rica has lots of problems, but the fact that you can have a society without an army and where a non-killing society proves that human nature is not destined or doomed to have war. Now, we make the distinction, and it's important, that um, all beings, really from bacteria on up, compete with one another for resources. And there are genes, there are behavior throughout the plant and animal kingdom that showed that uh, animals compete, animals and plants compete, say, for sunlight or nutrients or protein. And I, I would say that competition of resources is part of our nature. But, um, and maybe fighting. You can say one, one universal in people is that men tend to fight with one another over women. Um, throughout the world, the largest source of, of murder in the world are, are men uh, either killing each other and fighting over a woman or killing the woman because he thought she was unfaithful. Um, so, and that's true also in animals. Male-male competition is a universal. And some some animals fight with their antlers or some with their teeth. Um Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. But war is, imagine, okay, so let's say sex is normal or natural. People are born with sexual inclinations. That doesn't mean that you have to wear a certain garment or practice a certain position or go to a certain place to have sex. It doesn't mean that in order to make you need to spend $50,000 on a wedding with a dress and that's with a train 50 feet long and a bachelor party and a guest and whatnot. A wedding is a cultural phenomenon. Sex is biological. War 
complete with nuclear weapons, but drones and uh, high-flying aircraft and intercontinental ballistic missiles and so forth is more like a wedding with all this cultural overlay. Um, whereas fighting, like fisticuffs, somebody punches somebody in the nose. Um, a lot of war, and particularly the build-up to war and the defense budget in war-prone countries like the United States, is based on a very negative view and incorrect view of human nature that war is inevitable. What they're doing is confusing competition, which is, I think, pretty much inevitable, with war, which is a big cultural, expensive, very involved event. And they're not the same. Um, so Costa Rica proves that war is not inevitable, even though men in Costa Rica fight quite a lot. And they fight with machetes. But they, they don't usually use guns because guns are illegal in Costa Rica. But they fight. And the bars, they get really drunk, fight with machetes, they knock one another off the horses. But they don't have an army. And Costa Rica proves that war is not inevitable. That's the most important take-home message of this book. Um, can you talk to us about the most important moments that led to demilitarization in the country and just briefly talk to us about some differences or similarities with other parts of the world? Costa Rica had been building up a fairly non-violent, non-military country for a long time. Um, I may scramble my date, but I think Christopher Columbus touched base there in 1502. Um, by 1823, um, Costa Rica was liberated from the Spanish Empire. During the period of the 1800s, which was the Age of Enlightenment Europe, a lot of the rich people who were uh, involved in the coffee industry went to France to study, and they were very influenced by the writings of Voltaire and Rousseau. So just like, kind of like Thomas Jefferson, the, the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness came from the Enlightenment. Um, the, the government of Costa Rica began to do things like giving women property rights very early on in the late 19th century. Um, They did it interestingly. It started. It's a, it's a funny story. Prostitution was legalized in the late 19th century Costa Rica because Punta Arenas, the major port, was a great um, income source for the government because they sold liquor. They had a monopoly on the taxes from liquor, and they made the liquor. Women owned brothels. They sold sex. So they were able to buy property, and um, the government would collect taxes on the property. So everybody came out ahead by having prostitution legal, alcohol legal, and the government taxing everything. Um, the the um, Costa Rica never invested much in an army. They were invaded in 1857 by an American, William Walker, who was in, in line with the Confederacy, and he wanted to use Nicaragua and Costa Rica as a base to import slaves to the United States and other countries that were involved in slavery. Um, Costa Rica thought that was a really bad idea. Walker came in, Costa Ricans mobilized, like 10,000 peasants put down their swords, chased Walker out, and then a young drummer boy in Juan Santeria uh, set fire to uh, William Walker's um, abode. Juan Santeria died, um, but the, the filibusters, William Walker, were sent out of Costa Rica. That was the first war since Columbus landed there, and there were 2,000 casualties. 
2,000 casualties from that war. Okay, that was 1857. Um, we skip forward in time. Costa Rica um, never had a big standing army because the Costa Rican government had decided back in a kind of a financial crisis in the early, like 1829, that instead of taxing peasants who were poor, they began to distribute land and give them ownership and full clear titles so that anyone could have a sustainable farm to raise a family. And the idea was that people who had sustainable farms to raise a family would be happy, and again, they would pay taxes. So most of the Costa Rican economy was based on small-scale farming. You could be amazed what you could do with five acres and a pig and a cow. This is a lift. The, um, it, it, if you skip forward, I'm talking maybe too much detail, but the, there was conflict in the early 1940s between a man named Calderon, um, who, who had become president, um, and who was in favor of a lot of things like social welfare programs. Um, and other people who were uh, maybe more progressive. There was a civil war in 1848 where a farmer named Jose Figueres mobilized on his own a private army, and he kicked out the elected representative of the Calderon government named Yolate and had a temporary coup that lasted 18 months. Um, the first thing he did, Figueres, was make communism illegal, which was a really smart thing because that got him out of sight of the United States. He had studied at Harvard, he'd gone to MIT. So once communism was illegal and they couldn't claim to be communism, Figueres was free to do what he wanted. So he took a sledgehammer, he beat down the door of the armory where the few pathetic military schools kept, and he handed the keys to the Minister of Education. He literally gave the money that would have been for the military to the Minister of Education. He also started universal health care. In 1948, universal education, the right to have transit stops like bus stops at small villages. Um, he was in rule for 18 months. He peacefully handed control back to Ilate and the other party. He was successfully elected later on as president again. But these progressive reforms that he'd instituted at last, it hit by 1848 with no zero military budget, but fully funded universal health care. They made efforts to everyone get a telephone. They expanded the roads and infrastructure, so even tiny villages could take people to take buses. Oh, and they outlawed uniforms. This is a really cool thing. They, um, Costa Rica uniforms, other than school uniforms, are illegal. So, when Obama went to Costa Rica to visit and the band was going to play, the Costa Rican military band were wearing grown-up versions of children's school uniforms. Um, why did this, sorry, where, where this decision came from or what is trying to accomplish vanishing uh, uh, uniforms? The only permitted uniform in Costa Rica are school uniforms. So there are two kinds of police in Costa Rica. There are tourist police and then there are regular police. But they all wear variations on school uniforms. There's no, not the, the, the idea of a uniform that represents state authority is not allowed. Um, I don't know who came up with the idea. That's a good question. But it, it, it's an example of the kind of rejection of motorism. Now, sometimes school children are so poor, they don't have the money 
to get a uniform. The issue of poverty is very real, and so paying for school clothes and books and all is difficult. But the demilitarization is so so intense that you can't tell a policeman from a Coast Guard person. They all wear these blue uniforms. That's fascinating. And, I mean, that, that actually, I think, paves the way for the next question because there's an entire chapter dedicated, dedicated to study uh, good luck as a variable that could help us understand the possible relationship between the high level of national well-being and demilitarization. Why did you decide to analyze the idea of good luck and what is your proposal as authors in this regard? We thought about how can we break this down to a manageable topic and we decided that one element of Costa Rica, why they did so well, was good luck. Another was good decisions um, and good leadership. In good luck, Costa Rica... Costa Rica had a lot of good luck for no apparent reason. For example, um, there have been very few extremely decimating earthquakes in Costa Rica. Even though they have eight major, huge volcanoes, and the volcanoes erupt, and tourists can go see them. Um, occasionally, Torrealba spews ash all over the place, but there's been nothing like the earthquakes in Nicaragua, for example, that have killed so many people. Um, the, the, the tornadoes and hurricanes. Um, for whatever reason, Costa Rica gets a lot of rain on the rain season, and there have been mudslides. But actual hurricanes um, are almost unheard of, either on the Atlantic or the Pacific side. There haven't been great, devastating storms. So, again, that's, what can you say about good luck? There's another really more important piece of good luck that is militarization, which is that Costa Rica um, lacked minerals that the Spanish wanted to export. So, it's like the old song, I got plenty of nothing. Even though Christopher Columbus and some subsequent Spanish explorers were impressed by the gold and some of the cheap necklaces and things. It turned out Costa Rica didn't have much gold, no silver. It's not like Bolivia. If you read Eduardo Galeantes' uh, uh, Open Veins of Latin America and look at the effects of uh, Spanish exploitation in most of Latin America, um, it was based on minerals and natural materials. Costa Rica didn't have it. Costa Rica is a really hard place to get around. The soil isn't exceptionally good, except maybe in the Central Valley. Um, so the people who settled in Costa Rica were mostly from Spain, were going to a place where they knew they were going to be in an agricultural environment, they were going to work the soil, they were going to have to work it hard, and there weren't a lot of shortcuts. And in that sense, Costa Rica kept under the, uh, the vision of the Spanish Empire, who would have raped Costa Rica like it raped Bolivia if there had been minerals to take. Um, Costa Rica is and was remains a predominantly agricultural place. They branched out from bananas. They, they grow cardamom. They grow lots of interesting spices. They've had little bits of industry there. Intel had a factory, but closed. Um, but big time things like coal mining or coal mining, gold rush, it didn't happen then. So Costa Rica slipped under the view of the colonialists who wanted to take minerals from other parts of the world and take them to Europe for secondary manufacture. Um, that was good luck. Costa Rica also is an isthmus. It's a small place where cultures intermingled. Um, animals and people went north and south and south and north. 
there were the Incas and Mayans coming from the south. There were people, some people, particularly Spanish, coming from, from the north. Also, animals came from south and north. So it was a transit way. Lots happened. But, um, but they weren't decimated like the Mayans and Incas who were involved in whatever cannibalism and human sacrifice. They just never got that far. Um, and the Aztec Empire from, from uh, Mexico overlooked Costa Rica too. It slipped through the cracks. Um, and much to their benefit. It's a hard place to get around. On the East Coast, it's really hot and muggy, and then the mountains start, and it's very, very difficult. It's very hard. It took a long time to, to get a railroad built from Limon to Santa Fe. Um, on the West Coast, it's got two seasons. The soil isn't very good. It's good for growing cattle. But, um, again, it, it's not it's not an easy place to be. So they lucked out in terms of not being overwhelmed by colonialists. And all of these circumstances related to good luck uh, do not act in isolation. As you mentioned in your book, particularly in Chapter 6, the country has also benefited from other circumstances like the international involvement in political decisions. And I, I quote this because I really like it. Some unintended consequences of Tico social life. End of quote. I could like uh, to start with this idea. How, how would you describe Tico social life? It was particularly interesting when you explained some common phrases as well as the lack of trust in leaders who do not present themselves as being of the people. So, a ubiquitous phrase in Costa Rica is pura vida, which I guess loosely translated as life is good, good life. And it's said as kind of a verbal tick in the middle of sentences, um, like, uh, this morning I got up and I enjoyed the morning pura vida and then I made coffee. It's used like in the middle of sentences as kind of a random interrupter. How are you doing? Pura vida. Life is good. Um, it turned out the phrase was probably invented by the intelligentsia in the late 1890s as sort of a sales pitch as a reinforcing psychology to help the peasants feel good about themselves because you say, how are you doing? Pura Vida. Hey, how are you? Pura Vida. It repeats over and over. Life is good. Life is fun. There's not a lot of, I'm Jewish, but there's not a lot of kvetching in history. Um, life is fun. Um, there's another bumper sticker that says, Costa Rica, we make easy hard. Um, that, that even though life is good, Costa Rica has a bureaucracy that's almost Stalin-esque, and it's very difficult to get anything done. But attitude about that is very formative. Okay, well, my refrigerator's not working, but eventually the park will come. You know, things are slow. People finish their sentences, run into somebody in a store, and the conversations are very long. And they remember your family who's there and ask about one another. There's a level of intimacy that I adore. We had a neighbor named Jenny who had babies. Jenny's people had lived in our little town for many, many years. She had a baby. It's a tradition in Costa Rica for everybody else to have baby. And kiss it. 300 people came. Here's Jenny's baby. Um, I couldn't imagine that. Um, our doctor, Andrea, she had grown up in San Jose, and in one block where she grew up, she had 37 cousins. Um, there's a kind of social stability there, social and family stability there just astounds me because people move very much, leave, and their memories and connections to family are so deep 
that um, it's very different from the transitory communities I'm used to. Like one time I was sick and I was going to go to the hospital and the person who was my helper, Nelson, who said to me, going to the hospital, you're not going alone, are you? I said, well, yeah, like, I got the problem at the hospital. He said, you can't go to the hospital alone. Well, it turns out, Mr. Rika, somebody goes to the hospital, like 10 or 12 relatives go too, and they're spaced in the room for their beds and their family, and they hang out. They would never leave somebody in the hospital alone. It's just unthinkable. So they call that. There is something called the Hispanic advantage about happiness that you've probably explored on your show, looking at why cross-culturally uh, Latinos and Latinas have happiness greater overall if you believe in happiness concept. I think a deep part of that is the intensity of family connection. Um, and so I got to experience that personally because insofar as I was such a, adopted by, particularly they were Nicaraguan immigrants, but they wouldn't dream of leaving me alone. I, 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 I was protected all the time, um, and surrounded. Um, well, social life. Things are slow. Like I would watch two people, two men, sitting on the bench near the ocean, and they would talk for an hour or more, and they did it every morning, um, and catch fish. And it, it, it was leisurely. That was part of their culture. On the other hand, part of the culture, which was old, I don't know if you know about this, but Costa Rica is considered a blue zone, particularly the Nicoya area, which is like... 40 kilometers from where I lived. People in Nicoya, particularly the men, live longer than any other place in the world. There's less discrepancy in life mortality between males and females in the Nicoya area, particularly in a town called Ohancha, than any other place in the world. Why? Well, there's the diet and there's the community. The diet is that people eat the same thing three times a day. Rice and beans, um, gallo pinto, and they eat gallo pinto three times a day, and then occasionally an egg, or they kill a chicken and eat it, or if a cow gets killed by a truck in the road, everybody goes and takes parts of the cow, and that makes stew, so you get protein where you can, but rice and beans, rice and beans, and so you can eat a family forever. On a very stable diet, um, and the, the and the tortillas, the grain has to be ground very specially by hand with potash, and it appears to make um, it's more healthy for the heart. Calcium is more accessible, so um, the the grind, the preparation of food takes a long time, and the diet's very predictable. Um, Okay, then the social life, you add to that. Here are these people living in small areas. Say on Sunday morning, they want to go visit friends. So they walk five miles, go visit their friends, have a big feast, and walk five miles home. Um, it's hard to get that, that way, right? They're, 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 uh, their weight, their, before the invasion of McDonald's and, and, and pizza parlors, um, people from Lenkoya anyway were quite slender. And there's one other thing that particularly amused me, which was sex. In um, Costa Rica, at least in that part, it was understood that people had multiple sexual partners. Monogamy wasn't, I mean, people got married. Churches are not a very big thing in Guanacaste. They're nowhere near as big as the beer ads. Um, and men would have multiple marriages, but they also had multiple babies from people they weren't married to and had active sex lives well into the 80s. And the children, the offspring of 
unmarried women were accepted into village life along with everybody else. There was no discrimination against, quote, bastards. So the acceptance of those people, exuberant sex life, um, for both males and females, along with this family connection, along with the good food, I think it makes for a really good life. And I think um, this is leading to a question that I think I must ask. Um, after you wrote this book and believed it and researched about Costa Rica, what can the rest of the world learn from this country? The first thing to oh. learn is that war and militarism is not necessary. It's not in our genes. It's not hardwired. And Elaine White Gomez and other people from Costa Rica have take, taken leadership of the United States in the United Nations in promoting the total ban on nuclear weapons. Costa Rica has become a broker for international peace because there are nine nations with nuclear weapons, 29 nations in NATO, everyone else is subject to the whims of the nine nuclear nations. And finally, under Costa Rica's leadership, places like Patagonia, uh, Chile, even though they have nuclear-free zones in Latin America, um, they're going to die if the nuclear leaders make mistake or make a choice, say an ill-informed choice. Costa Rica has become a leadership in a leader in abolishing nuclear weapons and a leader in promoting peace studies. There's a university of peace in Costa Rica. It's a lovely place, not far from San Jose. Um, Costa Rica brokered the end of the war in Nicaragua. Um, Costa Rica has first-hand experience in living, teaching, and brokering peace. I think that is the most important thing to learn. Um, another thing is that once you abolish the military and reduce its spending, the peace dividend, so-called, is enormous. What you can do with all the money that's spent on weapons that can never be used, or just like big toys for big boys, you can build a whole lot of schools and universities and buses and uh, equipment. You can do good things without a military. And Costa Rica shows that in, in living, in a living way. Um, the culture of peace, here, here's just one small example. Because, you know, in Spain, bullfights, I think, is the detail like killing the bull. And it's bloody, and the bulls are guns, and have blown up. Costa Rica, the bullfights, there's the bull. And people, particularly old men, crowd into the arenas, and they dance. And bulls running around, and the people and horses, the picadors, like, sort of tease the bulls. The bulls are treated like boxers. But meanwhile... People are not bullfighters at all. Go into the area with the bull and they dance and they're drunk. And the friendliness of that explodes into the rest of the culture. Um, it, 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 once you take away the presumption of something evil in human nature that leads us to war, the creativity of a society is just... It's wonderful, beautiful. Um, and you wouldn't see that as probably as a normal tourist. A normal tourist would go see the volcanoes, go see the pretty beaches, go surfing. Um, to actually experience some of, some of these things, you have to be there for a long time. Uh, and and I, I, the book, in some ways, it's a memoir because we left Costa Rica in 2014. There were 
sad and difficult things about Costa Rica. And when you when you compare it, say, to Manhattan, um, Costa Rica is a paradigm, paragon of happiness, right? Um, things like organ trafficking, sexual trafficking, drugs, gangs, those things exist in Costa Rica, like in Manhattan. And there are probably more organ trafficking and sex trafficking in Manhattan than in Costa Rica. But in Costa Rica, it's up close and personal. I had a friend who opened her closet door and found six terrified women inside that had been trafficked from uh, Latin America. Um, I hadn't been bribery. So the, the the river was clogged, and people were competing to build new houses. One builder went to the mayor and offered fifty thousand dollars. His neighbor went to the mayor and offered seventy-five thousand dollars. She paid more. She got the bid. Um, it was transparent that graft bribery was real in a way that I had never experience. Um, so I don't want to say that this is a fantasy land. It's not a Disney theme park at all. Um, there are crocodiles in the rear Tarkolas and lots of garbage. There's a river. There's a river. I mean, that's where the happiness thing is the question. But the fact that Peace, that people are not packing guns. They have machetes. Okay. Um, it, that's a big difference. And the fact that there are no nuclear weapons targeted at Costa Rica, that's a nice thing. Because Costa Rica has no enemies. They're, they're, it's going to worry about. Maybe, maybe they'll get in trouble, but maybe there'll be a loose, a loose missile. But Unlike the rest of us who've grown up under mutually assured destruction, Costa Rica's grown up under Puerto Vida and Tranquilo and maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know if Mexico has similar expressions to that of sort of shading, shading answers so as to avoid conflict. Conflictual speech in Costa Rica, you don't get very Direct conversation, like, like again, I come from Jewish background where things are so direct and so in your face, so interrupted. Costa Rica, you're more likely. My experience is one was more likely to get a shaded or ambiguous answer to avoid conflict, even though there was a disagreement that was somehow substantive. It, it, a culture of peace is a like. You're listening so nicely to me, I'm interrupting, and then I listen to you. This is a, like, Costa Rican type conversation. We're smiling, nodding. Um, we're not having an interchange that would suggest that who's smarter. It, it, it pervades every aspect of, of, like, how little children deal with grown-ups. Children! Like, in the United States, there's this thing that someone wrote a book about nature deficit disorder, screen time, how much time children spend indoors. There's no nature deficit disorder in Costa Rica. We used to watch a boy who, eight or nine years old, who'd go out on the beach with maybe eight or nine dogs, and he would roll around in the sand, in and out, in and out. I never saw a grown-up in sight. Nobody was watching him. He wasn't taking swimming lessons. But he was outdoors all the time. I don't think he had Um And that deep connection with nature and the natural world is another take-home message. That Costa Rica is 5%. Five percent of the world's biodiversity in the space of a country the size of West Virginia. 
And um, everywhere you look, the interesting animals. Um, my, my friend Nelson, one night in the night, um, I don't know what he was doing, but he had gone outside and a Tamanju grabbed him, a, a sloth on the wrist. Sloth have, talk about nine inch nails. They have huge, long nails. So the Tamanjua grabbed Nelson, and Nelson had the presence of mind just to be quiet and sit. He figured if he panicked, the Tamanjua would puncture his arteries in his wrist. So he stood quietly, waited, and then he looked at said, I'm not going to hurt you, but I'm tranquilo. Eventually, Tamanjua slowly opened his grip, climbed back up the tree, and I got the picture. Like, no panico. That was another thing that my Spanish teacher kept saying. No panico. It's like the front page of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Don't panic. Um, that, that, that is a, another part, thing that I learned there. No panico. Um, tranquilo. Take it easy. Well, you did definitely, you, David, and of course the Costa Rican experience have given us a lot to think about and a lot of reflections to make uh, through the book. I don't want to end this uh, conversation without asking if you are uh, working on something or what kind of project you have in mind. Um, I am, but I haven't decided exactly which which area to go. Um, we, we wrote, David and I wrote a proposal for a book about debunking nuclear deterrence. No publisher would take it because it had the word nuclear. They said it wouldn't sell. Um, so David is writing a book about threats in general, which nuclear deterrence is one. I have three books I'm thinking about and taking notes on. One is about... Um, Lies that start wars, for example, like the Gulf of Tonkin, or when Napoleon told the French that it would be really easy to take Russia, Russia was very rich and they could go in and go out, and uh, um, no problem. Um, that's an interesting lie. Um, Hitler also thought it would be easy to take Russia. He thought it would be so easy that he didn't give the soldiers from Germany winter shoes or socks because he thought he'd go in Russia, Soviet Union, and get out again. And of course, that didn't Operation Barbarossa didn't work out so well. Um, there are a lot of lies that are all to act. So I'm taking notes on that. Another thing related to that, is a doctrine of informed consent. I feel that that concept is a highlighted form of what democracy means. That when you go see a doctor, in theory, the doctor should tell you what's wrong with you, what his proposed treatments are, what the side effects and benefits are of the proposed treatments, and what the alternatives are, including the alternatives of doing nothing. Um, I'm thinking about writing a book called Deformed Consent, which is about the disinformation that governments give people that's the opposite of informed consent, which is necessary for functioning democracy. So that's one. And then finally, I got caught up in the history of the book looking at um, multi-generational trauma and the effects of colonialism. Because since Costa Rica was spared and has this 400-year history of relative peace in territory of Nicaragua, Mexico, say, um, uh, can, the, the, I, I'm thinking about looking about epigenetic effects of trauma and I'm trying to look at the multi-generational transmission trauma, um, both biologically and sociologically. So I have notes going on all three topics, but I'm not sure where to settle. 
Well, all of them sound like a really, really interesting project. I would be looking forward to listening more about them when the time comes. I want to thank you very much for being on the show today, Judith. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, I really appreciate Thank you for interviewing me. And um, if your listeners have other questions, if you forward the questions to me, um, I would be happy to answer. I, I don't really want to answer individual inquiries via email, but if, if someone writes to you via the show and you send it to me, I'll respond to you, and I'd be happy to give responses, resources, references, anything I could. And I do urge people to visit Costa Rica and then to imagine a world without military and what that would be like and how we could live in peace. Kind of like John Lennon said. And, and let's, let's imagine that a non-killing society in peace is possible because Rica lives there as an example of what human nature can do. Thank you, Judith. Definitely. And thanks, everybody, for joining us uh, today. Uh, see you next time. Bye.